A quick content note here before we begin this episode of What Am I Rolling? This episode's one-shot, Artifact, is a game designed to be played alone. And, as it is an intentionally solitary experience, it might not be the best thing to play or listen to when struggling with feelings of loneliness. I also want to add in content warnings for the following themes. Death, decay, emotional manipulation, and elements of gaslighting. If you're not in the right headspace just now, please feel free to stop listening and come back if or when you're ready. Thanks, and stay safe, my friends. Hello, and welcome to What Am I Rolling? A twice-monthly RPG one-shot podcast, hosted by me, Fiona. This week, I am playing Artifact, a game of legendary items and transient heroes by Jack Harrison of Mousehole Press. In Artifact, the player crafts a unique magical item and plays to find out how it changes as it passes through the hands of many different keepers. In many classic dungeon crawl games, we follow the lives of adventurers as they overcome challenges to gain prestige and, more importantly, magical treasure. But what were those treasures doing before the adventurers came along? You can find out more information about Artifact and more RPGs from Mousehole Press on itch.io. I'll add links to it on the What Am I Rolling website and in this episode's show notes. Artifact is a game about magical items, tools with incredible powers and a sentience that grows as the game progresses. Items do not die, but they can be tarnished or broken, or otherwise lost and forgotten. An item cannot act alone, they must need a keeper to seize them. It is only then that they can go travelling about, see wondrous places and have grand adventures. An item's agency is limited, shackled to its keeper, but it can influence its situation through magic, communication, or force of will. Magical items outlive even the most venerable of keepers. Through death, bestowal, or carelessness, a keeper relinquishes the item, and their stint with the item ends. The item is then at rest, inert, and waiting. Time will pass, and eventually, a new keeper will arrive. As Artifact breaks up quite nicely into distinct sections, I'll go into each section before each part of the one-shot. One last thing before we begin. Naturally, there are times in this one-shot where the players and myself, mostly myself, get the rules wrong or forget something plot-wise. Whilst we always endeavour to stick to the rules wherever possible, at the end of the day, we all make mistakes. And what matters most is that everyone enjoys themselves. So... Let's start with Artifact, Creation, and Traits. There are nine different artifacts to choose from, from weapons to shields, from jewellery to automaton, each one being an archetype of a sentient magical item. They have thoughts, they have desires, and can communicate directly or otherwise with their keepers. 
After choosing an artifact, the player must answer the opening questions about the item's creation. They must describe the person who made the item, and add free traits or characteristics to describe its starting properties. Traits here might mean physical or magical properties or facets of an item's developing personality. As the game progresses, the item evolves and develops, shaped by its experiences. At various points, the player will be asked to change something about the item. This usually means adding, removing or modifying a trait, a detail about the physical appearance of the item, a detail about something in the world, a name or a faction, or a response to one of the artifact questions. A particularly momentous change might make it sensible to do several of these things at once. The player can also make a change whenever they feel it is appropriate, even if they are not explicitly prompted. Finally, the player will be asked to draw the item, making the sketch large enough to easily record changes as they play. When the player has completed all the instructions for their chosen artifact, they must empty their hands, close their eyes, and take a moment to breathe, and then begin. So the available artifacts we've got are a weapon, so it's a tool of war, so it's talking about blades, axes, or something stranger. I could have a shield, which is something of protection, so from towering scutter to death bucklers. An instrument, so something that produces musical sounds from some way. An ornament, so jewellery, charms, trinkets, etc. The deck, so a collection of worn cards, like an oracle or something stranger. Footwear, so shoes. A staff, so a conduit for magic, a focus for arcane power. A tome, so a book of some sort for knowledge. And an automan, so a self-operating machine responsive to orders. Ooh... You know what? I'm going to go for something completely weird. I'm not going to go for a typical shield or a typical weapon. I think the cards thing is a nice idea. The thing that's got me is the ornament. Jewellery and charms and trinkets. I think I would like to play something like that. So I'm going to put that down. I'm going to choose an ornament. The ornament. You were crafted from the rarest gems and metals by a master artificer. Describe them, their materials, and their fateful forge. Add free traits describing your item and then draw it. Embellish your drawing with jewels, runes, and other intricate details. So, I'm not thinking jewellery or anything like that. Like an amulet is quite nice. I like that idea. But I'm actually thinking of a mirror, a handheld mirror whereby the artificer who created it um let's, let's come up with them let's come up with them there once was a man who worked all his life in a blacksmith and he loved his job he was very skilled at it but what he was most skilled at was creating beautiful ornate items he was called Jin Hollow, J-Y-N, Hollow. The Hollows themselves were quite well known in their sort of village. People from other towns would come over and request items, little trinkets and whatnot to give to their partners, their family members for celebrations. And Jin obviously took these commissions and created them. His reputation sort of preceded him in quite a number of ways, and actually he grew quite rich from his business adventure, so he could invest in more 
let's say, expensive materials, so more gold, more silver, more gems and whatnot. The forge itself was one of bestoke beauty in a way, in its sort of rough shagginess. To the untrained eye, it would just seem like another sort of blacksmithy forge, but looking at it and seeing the way Jin worked with the metals and heating and blowing them, how he taught apprentices how to create beautiful glasswork, beautiful vases, cutlery or anything like that, he had a way with his hands to create this stuff. Something about it. I would even go as far to say that maybe the royal family of this kingdom paid him a visit once or twice and asked for his help in creating some beautiful items. With a coronation on the way with the young queen taking the throne when she came of age, it was very important for her to do that. So something other than a crown, something to commemorate it. So each artifact has a list of sensible traits for that archetype. So I'm gonna I'm gonna see what they've got. Suggested traits, here we go. So the ones it suggests for traits are obscuring, sensing, protecting, strengthening, healing, spectral, whispering, summoning, elemental, kindling, clockwork, evil, tender, beguiling, tricksy, mercantile, loyal, curious, and bless. Hmm. So, one day, Jin is hit with inspiration to create a small handheld mirror. It's unlike any item he's created before, but just something where he could create an object that one could hold and look at their reflection and see themselves for how other people see them. The reason he would make such an item is because after meeting with the royal family and discussing what would be appropriate for a coronation gift for the young queen, it became apparent that she clearly does not feel comfortable being the queen, that she lacks the confidence to rule and is worried that people see her as inept. So creating such an item for her to see what other people think of her. I like the idea that her... So I like the idea that holding up to the mirror to your face, your reflection is the one that speaks back to you and tells you what other people think. So, with that in mind, I want to... I think from these ones I've suggested... Uh, I'm going to say beguiling as one trait. Uh, whispering, I like the idea that it sort of whispers to you, so you don't, not everyone hears it, it's just to the person, so beguiling, whispering, and then I think I'm going to pick one that's not on the list, I'm going to think of another one. I'm going to say manipulative, unless there's another nicer word than that, because the reason Jin was creating this item was so that the young queen could hear all the good things. So only hearing what be helpful. So being manipulative and not necessarily giving the whole truth could be something. So I'm going to put that, I'm going to put manipulative. Okay, so the three traits I've gone for are beguiling, whispering and manipulative. 
So essentially what I've drawn, it's like, it will be slightly bigger than like a magnifying glass. You know, it's like a handheld mirror, like proper Beauty and the Beast style. That's what I am actually thinking. But instead of like that idea of scrying on someone or anything like that, it just shows yourself. And I like, oh, that's a good idea. So it shows yourself speaking these truths to you, but then behind you, it could see other people, depending on how strong the connection is or what you technically ask it, sees other people and what they actually think or what it perceives from it. Oh, that'd be quite good. Yeah, okay. So when you've completed the instructions for your chosen artifact and are ready to play, empty your hands, close your eyes, and take a moment to breathe. Open your eyes and choose the first person to take ownership of you, your first keeper. You begin by turning to the first act, newly forged. Artifact takes place over three acts, forming the magical item story as the game progresses. Each act has its own set of keepers and time options to choose from. After choosing a keeper, the player will complete a series of steps to tell the item's story and explore the ways the item might change from the experience. First, the player will describe the keeper, providing their name and a few striking details. They should consider how the keeper acquired the item. Was it given to them? Or did they find it? Then, the player must answer two questions or prompts listed under that keeper's heading. Next, the player must choose a memorable event or deed defining the item's time with the keeper. If they achieved great things together, they choose from the victories and valors table. If the item was slighted or misused, they choose from the neglect and mischiefs table. As the item learns from experiences, the player may answer one of their artifact questions given on the sheet. Finally, the player must think about how the keeper ends their time with the item. Where and how do they lose or relinquish it? The choices of keepers that I have are I've got a folk hero, a young noble, a rogue without a master, and a revolutionary leader. Well, it's going to be young noble, aren't they? That's what I sort of described. Okay, so act one, newly forged. First keeper is a young noble. They are wealthy, educated, and fashionable. So I was given to them as a coronation gift. I was given to Queen Beatrice, newly coronated noble person of the kingdom of Wonderton. Alright, so the three questions I have for this are, describe the landed family that they are descended from, and how were you used in the nobles' cutthroat politics? Ooh, oh, I did not expect that question. So we'll start with the first one, the landed family one. So a little bit like if people of the podcast have listened to Pugmire, I like the idea that the way their politics works is that they had the founding sort of leaders become the kings and queens, and then as the last descendant of that family passes away, the other noble families are, are then, they sort of, sort of vote and gain influence and whatnot, and then the next king or queen comes from the next noble family. So I think that is what's happened here. I'd say in the last two generations, Beatrice's family uh, will give them the name of give them the name of Clearwater. Beatrice Clearwater. That sounds good. So the Clearwater dynasty, as it were, had made great strides in securing 
the future for young Beatrice and her siblings. And through sort of the matriarchal sort of pushing and sort of, you know, getting friends in high places and whatnot, they've sort of found themselves being one of the lead noble families. And with the passing of the last queen, it was obvious in a way that the next choice would definitely be from the Clearwater clan. And so it's been two generations since then. And now the next person to sort of become queen is Beatrice Clearwater. The family itself is not secretive or anything like that, but they're just, they hold their cards close to their chests. They definitely put on like a, you know, a niceness, but distance. They are a bit socially distant, obviously because they're nobles, but like, you know, they'll do the charity work, they'll do the work to be seen good, but there's also another agenda there. You know, they're doing it not only for the good of the people, but also to advance their own agendas, which is to gain more power and to have a secure sort of notch on the, the ruleship. So I think, to an extent, I think everyone, maybe including Beatrice, so like I said, she suffers from the anxiety and not showing if she's ready or not to take on the role because there is now this other pressure from her family to continue to make sure that their succession, their sort of stability with this power is secure. And she's worried that she's going to sort of muck it up in a way. So there's a lot of, there's a family pressure from that and also the pressure to do well by her people. How were you used in the nobles' cutthroat politics? God, that's such a hard question. I was used to actually spy on people after meetings. Like, couldn't really, we can't scry, per se, or show things as they are, but I was used certainly by Beatrice after she'd have meetings with her, the head of the guards, the sort of head, head of the military forces, various strategists and stuff, she would go back to her quarters, get the mirror and ask what they truly thought of the plan to suss out any weaknesses, any sort of um, insights that they hadn't necessarily shared with her. As a result of that, I have to be kept on her person most of the time so I get a sense in the room, you know, and actually be able to feel this tension and stuff and actually reflect it back to her. I think often most people were telling the truth, but definitely after one or two decisions, and maybe, again, the sort of dismissive, oh, she's very young to be queen, she's immature, she's not ready, etc. Those doubts definitely started to get amplified really early on. And so I would, you know, be honest about it, because she would ask what did they really think? Were they hiding anything from me? Is there anything more? And I would get an honest read of them, and I would tell her that. And so she would act upon that. She would then, after maybe a few days, dismiss several members of the court, maybe replace them with her own family members who would stick with the Clearwater agenda, would, would tell her what she wanted to hear and be honest about it to her. But because they're on the same side, it didn't matter too much if they criticised her because they're doing it... They're only thinking of her, that's it. They're doing it only because they know what's good for her, and she trusts that. But as a result, the whole court suddenly gets replaced with various members of the Clearwaters, and it's... it looks bad. 
people are starting to talk quite a bit as a result. All right, choose from a table. So you either choose from the victories and valors, so valiant acts, vanquish evil, and inspiring maneuvers. Sadly, I don't think that's what it is. Or neglect and mischief. Ooh. Neglect and mischief, so treacherous acts, tragic loss, and demeaning misuse. Well, yeah, it has to be that. So choose an option from below, answer questions, and change something as you become hardened and jaded or vindicated. Ooh. Okay, I think I understand. So I think I have to choose an option from below and then change something about myself. So I'm going to answer this following question. You intentionally deceive or refuse to help your keeper, leading to their demise. What took place and why did you act in this way? I think I refused to help. I refused to help Beatrice. It'd been a few years now in her rule, and I was aware when she'd held court with the peasants, with the, the villagers, with the people from the town who'd come and beg her for her help. And I could sense their genuine stuff, but she didn't care about it anymore. She wanted to know what they actually wanted and grew sort of paranoid in a way, thinking that they were sent here to lie and stuff. And I would give her the truth. I would show her what they wanted and repeat back exactly what she did and she wouldn't believe me. She said they must have an agenda, they must do. How could I lie to her in such a way? And then one time there was there was word that an attack was mounting on the borders of the kingdom and a messenger had been sent and she stood before the queen and her throne and begged and begged and begged saying you must send help, you must send an army, you please let let my village come into the citadel. There are vulnerable people here, there are sick, there are old, there are children. We can't face them off, we are not a community for that. These barbarians, if anything, are gonna come and destroy our livelihood on the way to come and attack here. You must help us. And she asked for a moment in a side room, consulted me. And I knew that messenger was genuine, but I knew she wouldn't listen to me or heavily relied on my ways, so I didn't do anything. I kept quiet. She flew into such a rage. She was screaming at me, saying, you must know, you have to tell me, what is it that they want? Is this a cover? Is this a trap for my kingdom? I will not be shown up by, by a fucking mirror. And eventually, she stopped and put me down into the desk drawer, locked it. I heard her sigh, a big breath, and she left. She used her best judgment and refused to give help. Over the next couple of weeks, from seeking out through me trying to sense people's emotions from the desk, there was whispers 
a war was coming. They completely destroyed several towns along the way. And there was talk about how the queen is not well. She has made so many decisions, but refuses to listen to anyone. She's become so paranoid that people are all against her. By being this paranoid and not listening to anyone, people are turning against her. I don't know when it happened, but, well, she had to abdicate the throne pretty soon as the war got to the gates. So I'm going to pick the artifact question. Over time, you gain a name or honorific. What is it and why? So, after sort of being, you know, used in quite a lot of the politics, like it would be well known that Queen Beatrice did use a, a mirror of some sort. I think there would have been rumours or spreading that she uses it to sort of judge people. So, I think the name I would have gotten would be the Mirror of True Judgment. So, I've got to change something about myself. So I've got a choice to change a trait, uh, something about my physical appearance, a response to an artifact question, or a detail about something in the world. I'm going to add a trait. I am going to add... Suspicious. I feel that my purpose was misused, so newer keepers will probably will just misuse me again, so I have to be careful. Consider how the keeper loses you. There is an attack on the castle, and there is a moment where after many weeks of being stuck in this desk, I sense her presence nearby. I sense her rushing towards the desk, trying to unlock it, grabbing me and putting me into a cloth bag. I feel her being scared, and I feel her fearfulness, her sorrow, but it's for herself, it's not for her people, it's for herself for being in this situation. She manages to duck down some secret passageway and escape out of the castle onto the rocks, underground. Just as we get to a point, she realises she's being followed by a gang of thieves, and so she rushes into end of the terminal and she realises that there is an underwater stream, and that she must jump into the stream and leave that way. So without hesitation, she jumps and the bag slips from her belt as we plunge into the dark cold water I feel her essence moving slowly, slowly away and then it's gone as I sense other beings getting closer raising up something and then these darts, these horrible bits of sort of light hitting her I can sense her light disappear and I sink slowly to the bottom of this sort of man-made sewer structure pushed along by the current. And eventually I come out into a huge underground cavern. 
and I rest in between some rocks and I just hear the the lapping of the water at the rocks. As the player awaits for the next keeper to claim the item, they will rest in darkness with their eyes closed. The player always chooses how much time passes whilst the item waits. The act will tell the player what to think about whilst they wait. Eventually, the silence will break and a new keeper will appear. So the choices I've got are no time at all, which means I just keep going, a day, where I rest for five seconds, a week, 10 seconds, a month, 20 seconds, a year, 40 seconds, a decade, rest for a minute. I'm going to choose a week, I think. I think that the castle will be explored and stuff, so I need to rest for 10 seconds. And whilst I do this, I need to think about silence and solitude of abandonment. All right, now I need to choose a new keeper. So the choices I have left are a folk hero, a rogue without master, or a revolutionary leader. I think I'm going to choose a rogue without a master. So it's been a week, and suddenly I feel the presence of someone near coming down into the cavern itself. I can sense a boy, maybe a teenager, I'm not sure. And clearly it gets to sort of the, the surface of the lake and starts looking around the rocks, searching, seeing if he can spot something and then picks up the bag. As soon as he lifts me to his face, I see long hair, broken nose, and an amazing smile. His name is Rodney. Rodney used to be part of a local gang here in the Citadel itself. And with a bunch of street urchins, managed to live life sort of day to day, stealing food and avoiding the city guards. Now it's become quite apparent after the raid on the castle, the rest of those who were left, a few of the bandits and whatnot, have started picking through the remains of the burnt-out shell, taking items for their own. Rodney knew there'd be something more, some more treasure down in the depths of the castle. So he and his chums were sort of searching around and then he found the underwater stream. And there was a lot of daring back and forth, kids telling them that you should do this, you should do that. And eventually he just went for it. But of course, they would need proof to show that he'd gone right down into the cavern itself. So he picked me up. What marks them as a soul of unburdened by servitude? Compared to Beatrice, who had all the pressures of family and state and leadership thrust upon her, Rodney seems carefree. He does what he wants. He likes a pretty gem, he likes a pretty item, but he's happy-go-lucky, he smiles, he makes his own rules. No one tells him what to do. He 
he lives life just by running with his pack of friends down the street corners, chatting and laughing and playing with them. He doesn't... He doesn't show me to the others. He obviously works out what I do, but he doesn't use it. He uses me as a way to talk through any problems he's having, talk through any um, questions, any sort of issues he's been having. Whether a certain member of his uh, adopted family of friends fancies him, working out, you know, what people's real intentions are, but not caring too much if they are true, but just, you know, being on the cautious side. How did you help them pull off their boldest stunt ever? Hmm. So going back to whether or not one of his friends fancies him. So a young girl by the name of Bri. A sort of ragtag, messy-haired, amazing freckles on her on her sort of tawdy brown skin. She has an incredible smile, and that's what Rodney likes the most. So desperate to sort of find out how she feels about him without necessarily hurting himself or herself, he starts to ask her sort of questions about what she likes to do. Then using me as sort of a sounding board to see like, what would be an ideal way to just, you know, continue the conversation and possibly with consent, become an item. Bry loves apples. And the best apples are in a guarded orchard, maybe several miles away from the castle, where the urchins hang out. I can't keep calling them urchins. They'll have a name, like a party name of sorts. They'll be called... It'll be something stupid like, um, the cloud ferrets. I don't know, I just don't want to say water rats. <laughs> cloud ferrets. And the cloud ferrets have been banned from going into the orchard because they steal too much and there's a guard posted on it because these apples are only for the, the high classes of society. So, with a mixture of sort of me finding out the weaknesses of the guards, maybe encouraging Rodney to go at certain times and pick the best apples, he presents her with this gorgeous golden apple. I sense her delight and her admiration for getting something so daring because there was it was quite well guarded, especially when it's the busy harvest season. But yeah, so being able to talk through the plans and encourage Rodney to go do it because if he doesn't do it, he would never know if, if she also had the similar feelings. The boldest stunt of love. <laughs> Okay, let's choose from table. So I was a good one. So I'm going to choose from the the nice table now. A long-standing feud between two prominent factions was resolved. How did you help your keeper convince the fractious leaders to come to the negotiating table? So I've obviously pictured Rodney as a younger teenager, essentially. So that's what I'm going to do here. So the two prominent factions. So we've got the Cloud Ferrets, which seems like a silly name, but then you're going to have the two other sort of rival gangs, essentially. You're going to have Sod it, we're going to call them the Waterstones and the Fire Pebbles. And <laughs> there was a big feud because they were saying, well, who comes first? You know, like, who came first to come up with those names? And 
you know, which one is better as a result, which one's the sort of great claim to being the oldest cool gang for, you know, street urchins in this this kingdom. You know, obviously these things are blown out of proportion because they are essentially children, but it was very bitter and there would always be fights between the Waterstones and the Fire Pebbles. So, how did I help my keeper convince them to talk to each other and sort out this feud? I think Rodney would have talked to me quite a bit about each of the leaders themselves and talk about how really they had quite a lot in common, but they couldn't see past it because of the naming thing. And I suggested that maybe, you know, maybe he's the one to, to bring them together. Rodney wasn't so sure, but then after the Apple incident with Bry, I sort of manipulated it so that, you know, they did eventually get together and, you know, spent quite a lot of their youth being a couple and having an incredible relationship. So I no longer was a sounding board per se, just used as an odd curiosity. Again, Rodney never showed me to Bri, but I would suggest, what does Bri think about this? And it turns out that one of Bri's siblings actually was a member of the Fire Pebbles. And Bri was worried that the violence caused by these scuffles between the two factions would end up with someone getting hurt, and she really didn't want that to be her sibling. So once again, I sort of used that angle to convince Rodney to maybe you're the one to do it as leader of the Cloud Ferrets. You have an outsider perspective on these things, and you don't necessarily gain anything from both factions coming together and resolving this, but maybe to listen to an outside perspective. And I encourage him to do that and just to make that change, even though the worry of it not going down and getting caught in the crossfire. But he did. He went up and he talked to both leaders and they actually went on a very long walk around the sort of the different ramparts of the ruined castle, discussing ways to move forward, how that the war really devastated this kingdom and we can't keep using acts of violence to progress when we all needed healing in some way. And they agreed. So eventually, the factions all came together and it became one faction, essentially. Each of the organisations suddenly then finding purpose. From children into young men and women, they realised that their experiences of the war they could do something about it and actually use that experience to help others. So they set up, between them all, about a good 20, 25 people, a charity, a foundation of sorts, which gave advice and tried to help out those who really needed it. And they did good. So I'm going to add a detail about something in my world, name or a faction. So I'm going to create this faction now, the one that incorporates the Waterstones, the fire pebbles and the cloud ferrets into one. And I'm gonna call it. Oh, I just got, uh, you know, I'm just gonna call it Friends of Wonderton. And they are a charity. And they go about the different towns of this kingdom to help those who need it and give them aid. Oh, that's quite nice. Answer an artifact question. 
I'm going to answer this question. You were once given as a present to someone your keeper was madly in love with. They felt it was improper and returned you with a scornful retort. What made them feel that way? Oof. I think it would have been on the day of Rodney and Bri's wedding. I think Rodney thought now was perfect time to sort of introduce me as a way that I've been helping him with his confidence and being able to talk to people and being able to lift up his sort of almost natural spirit to be charismatic and, and help people. And he boxed me up, sent me with a little note to where she was getting dressed. And she opened it. And before I could even do anything, I just saw the fall on her face, the sadness, because, well, I'm a very gaudy item, you know? I, I'm silver, almost platinum colors. I have many sort of jewels put into the back of my mirror in a decorative pattern. I look expensive, because I am. But she thought that I was, had been bought and made for her when they didn't have that much money and any money they did make was to be reinvested into, into the Friends of Wanton. And so there was that gaudy aspect of myself, but also she didn't like looking at herself. She'd lived all of her life without a mirror. She saw her as a luxury. So why would she start now? She's happy the way she is. She doesn't need someone to reflect it back at her. And so she was cross that Rodney thought this was an appropriate gift. Said it was a wasteful, expensive gift. How does the keeper lose me? So, bit by bit, Rodney uses me less and less growing confident in his own abilities, hearing what Bry said to him. Moments pass and I feel that he's changed. Suddenly he has a child and then two and then three. I start to see him lose his hair, but it's still the same warm smile, still the same happiness when he does use me, but it's less and less now until one day I'm put into a box, forgotten about during clearing when they're starting to move to different districts, different housing, and he forgets. Maybe it's a mixture of not knowing if I actually did help him with what happened or whether he discovered it himself. So all I ever did was encourage him to be himself and to do certain things. Compared to, to Queen Beatrice, I didn't do, I didn't say anything different. So there's a moment where I think one of his grown-up children is saying, should we get rid of these old boxes, Dad? What about this? And I feel him, I feel him, but he's not looking at me. He's not looking, he's looking out of the room, out of the window. And he patches it up and goes, no, go on, take it to the shop, put it there. And so they put me with a lot of other boxes and stuff on the back of a wagon and we start this unknown journey. The journey is long and the road gets hard. There is a, a storm and as we sort of round 
corner, the wagon hits something and the box flies up and I feel myself rolling over and over and I come to a stop. I think I'm in some sort of... I'm outside, on a moor somewhere, hidden deep in some bushes, and just face down, hearing the sounds of wildlife all around me, as the sound of the wagon trundles off into the distance. The time that needs to pass. I'm going to say another week has passed because there'll be quite a few travellers along the road and whatnot. So I've got to rest for 10 seconds. I've chosen two keepers. So I need to move on to a time of glory. So the choices I have are a righteous champion, an all-conquering warlord, a bandit king or a monster hunter. Instantly going for the monster hunter there. They are sharp, fearless and impossibly strong. Suddenly I feel around me another presence and slowly but surely I feel myself being lifted up from the dirt and the mud, a gloved hand smoothing out the grit stuff and wiping me down and I see a woman dressed in heavy armor, big long coat, huge crossbow on her back, and a hat, which instantly says to me, this person means business. Her name is Clarissa Von Grin. Now Clarissa has beautiful dark hair that's tied back into a low, messy sort of bun, which the hat helps hide. Her features are sharp, like edges of glass, and there is a cool confidence that oozes out of her. She quickly discovers what I'm all about, and she uses this heavily to her advantage. So, my two questions are, describe the highly competitive guild they belong to, and how we used to defeat a legendary beast. So. The highly competitive guild they belonged to was, obviously, the Wanderton's Guild of Monster Hunting. Essentially, it's a bit like a lodge, a hunting lodge. Clarissa is one of the many hunters that has been awarded sponsorship there, and is sent out onto quests to help defeat and regulate the various monsters that patrol the wilderness that surrounds the towns in Wanton. It's competitive in many ways, mostly because it's full of men. Clarissa is only one of maybe a handful of female monster hunters, and the environment is therefore very macho. And she holds her own, but there is definitely an unease when she's in the common room, surrounded by other heavy drinking folk, essentially. The Guildmaster does appreciate her efforts though, and will always prioritise giving her the top jobs as they think she is the most capable out of all the hunters there. And that too causes some tensions and whatnot. Mostly she uses me as a way to just double check what people are actually thinking around her when they're saying their snide comments and stuff. 
but more because she uses me as an actual mirror rather than my magical expertise. I do give her that insight should she ask for it, but after the first two times she says, oh, well, that was obvious. Uh, <laughs> so I'm kind of taken aback by her abruptness, but seeming this is a person who's always got the sense of people's double meanings and double sayings of stuff, it makes sense that she doesn't need a magical item to tell her what people actually mean. How were you used to defeat a legendary beast? So, there'd been talk of a werewolf clan that had recently moved into the area. Uh, with a few killings of local farmers, livestock, and people were scared, people were frightened. So, Clarissa was put on the case to find out more about it. So, normally, what she did was investigate the crime scenes. You know, talk to people, be a proper, what I would like to think as a fantasy detective. <laughs> and then using me as a sort of way to sense out people that she was not sure of, or she got a weird vibe off. And eventually, she narrowed down the suspects to a family. A young mother who said that her husband had recently disappeared and she was at a loss of what to do. She had, was left caring for her wee children. And I felt something was not right. There was something not something that this person was hiding so which I informed Clarissa about and so after many sort of stakeouts and stuff we discovered that of course the woman herself was the werewolf in question and a few more days digging around we discovered that the werewolf clan as it were it was literally just this one person exiled out from sort of the mountain clans for killing her partner her mate and Interestingly, the children that she had were actually children she'd picked up from hunting down parents who hadn't treated their partners well, or hadn't treated their families well. We worked out together when this person would be the weakest. So it was a quick job to sneak in early morning for Clarissa to just, well, I mean, not to beat about the bush, so to speak, but Clarissa shot this woman in her bed with a silver-tipped arrow. And that was that. Choose from the tables. So yeah, I think that was a good thing, in a way. Like, not nice, but... Alright, so using the Victory and Valor's one. Hmm. I'm gonna put this one in. I'm gonna answer this question. A great warrior was trapped in an impossibly tall tower by an evil sorcerer. Why did your keeper owe them their life, and how did you help them free them? Hmm. So the great warrior was somebody that was very dear to Clarissa. It was her brother, Cornelius von Grin. They didn't really get on that much because of the sibling rivalry um, that they had, but she owed Cornelius her life because without him she would have never grown to be a monster hunter. There was a few years between them, but his ability to outwit and outfight anything really inspired her and he always encouraged her to be better than him, to be something that others would not expect, to prove other people wrong. 
So in that sense, she owes him her life, the life that she has now got. She's now a very successful monster hunter and is planning to, when the time is right, to apply for a promotion and maybe become head of the Monster Hunter Guild. How did I help free them? That's a good point. I think very similarly to how I helped Rodney. She talked through her plan to me and what she suspected and I sort of bounced off ideas to her. I started mirroring her own mindset back at her so she could see the weaknesses, see the flaws in it. I also, when she talked to other people, tried to talk about what this wizard was like and how, what people thought of this person. And when she was doing her investigations with people who had met this evil sorcerer or had been abused by the sorcerer's magic in some way, again, being able to suss out the little details, interests that they weren't necessarily telling, that in fact they were someone who was very prepared for an attack on the tower, knowing how important Cornelius was to people. So, basically a lot of planning. <laughs> But giving that confidence to Clarissa to actually, you know what, this is important and you need to go save your brother. Someone who you've looked up to and and though they might not say it, they need you right now. So, with that in her heart, she went with a number of people from the guild of Monster Hunters and got through and rescued Cornelius. Okay, and then I need to change some things. Add. I think what I'm going to do for this, I'm going to, I'm going to add something about a physical detail about the appearance. So I think by this point, I've been used quite a bit as a handhold sort of device. I think I am going to have some wear and tear on the actual handle. Some of the detailing has worn away slightly. Not to be like, here is where you hold your hand, but you know, it's definitely not as well detailed as it was before. So definitely use of wear and tear. Answer an artifact question. How do you come to think of your keepers? As possessive magpies, compliant marionettes, or something else? Because of the early start and the way Queen Beatrice used me, used me for ill, and not what my purpose was. I think I've realized that people are genuinely quite good, but the source of power they get does change them. I am aware of the ability and the effect I have on people. Some people are much stronger than others. So Rodney, for example, had a stronger will and only used me as sort of a guide, a friend, if anything, if one can be friends. Clarissa uses me as an assistant. I guess. There's no friendliness there, she just asks me for my opinion and I give it to her and that's it. She takes what I say and dissects it and then puts it into her own thing, so she sees it more as advice, but it's questionable. But she does still use me. I think then, hmm, possessive is definitely one, for sure. I think magpies in a sense, because I am beautiful, there's no doubt about it. There's something eye-catching about using it as a mirror, for sure. And showing it off to a certain extent. Not that Clarissa would do that, but people do make fun of her for having it. But then she could easily not use me. There is something about the power that draws people to it. The, the sense, the 
feeling it gives them, the good feeling, hearing what they want to hear. But then if they ask for the truth, I give them the truth if that is what they want to hear. Possessive magpies, but judged by, judged by individual cases. Consider how the keeper loses you. Hmm. There comes a point where Clarissa does get her promotion. There comes a point where Clarissa does get her promotion and she's moved up into the higher ranks of the guild. But it gets to a point where she isn't going out much on monster hunts anymore. She's stuck in the lodge doing the admin, doing the leadership stuff, whilst younger people are being sent out. So she doesn't need me as much. Eventually she gets to that point where actually all of her things she doesn't need for the job she currently has, so she folds me away into a cloth bag and puts me into the master of the lodge's safe, along with some other items and paperwork. And I don't see her again. Our relationship was one of business, not of sentimental value. So, hmm. And then the next thing I know, time has moved on. And a new keeper opens the door. So I've got the choice of times. I've got a month, a year, a decade, a century, centuries, or a millennium. I am going to say, let's go for... Let's go for a decade. So for the decade, I need to rest for one minute. And as I rest, I think about the weight of every passing day growing imperceptibly with each sunset. So, a minute. What lies in store for our mirror of true judgment? Will their keepers be better or worse than the last? Find out next time on What Am I Rolling? The What Am I Rolling podcast was created, recorded and edited by me, Fiona Howard. This episode's player was Fiona Howard. This episode's RPG was Artifact, a game of legendary items and transient heroes by Jack Harrison of Mousehole Press. You can find out more information about Artifact and other Mousehole Press products on itch.io. The theme music was 8-Bit March by Twin Musicon of twinmusicon.org, licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 license. If you want to find out more about the podcast, check out the website. That's www.wairpodcast.com. Fancy getting in touch? Email the podcast at whatamirollingpodcast at gmail.com. 
Finally, follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at WAIR underscore podcast for the latest news on upcoming episodes. And remember, adventurers need not apply.